Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Witt here. Just a programming note, apparently during the recording of this episode, about a half hour in, Dalton Hughes' microphone went completely out, and none of us noticed it until the end of the evening, after we'd already exported the recording and discovered that a good hour of what he had to say was gone. Luckily, we did pick up his voice on the other microphone, which means that from about minute 30 onward, when you hear Dalton, he's going to sound a little stranger than usual. <laughs> Sorry, Dalton, I couldn't resist. Because we had to amplify him. So, apologies to Dalton, apologies to you. Hopefully you'll enjoy this episode. Anyway, enjoy. Hello, fellow time travelers. This is Sean from the Rusted Robot Podcast and the Soul Forge Podcast. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. So, we're still in what can sit upon the blood. <laughs> Let's try that again. Now, when you said mellow, I completely misconceived where... Yes. <clears throat> Fans, I apologize. Mr. Wit has expired on the table in front of us. Leaving God. only his blood, his, his blood and phlegm-soaked hanky, hanky am, for posterity. I am never going to get through this if you don't stop. You don't stop oh, making no. fun of your occasional uh-huh. consumption. Um, my well, consumption, acid reflux, whatever it is, whatever it is, I am dying. Dyspepsia. Dyspepsia. There we go. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, a podcast in which we undertake the chilling task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have a very chill three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's Worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hi. Hi. And we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. It will be my pleasure to be pretentious for you this evening. <laughs> <laughs> and you do it so well. I All right. Before we get to talking about the book, there's one thing I have to say. Um, in our last episode, I claimed that Danny Celadon had not been part of our program since the in- inaugural two episodes. Allison immediately corrected me and said, uh, no, he's been with us on the Star Trek podcast. And I said, no, but he hasn't. Yes, but he hasn't been on this one. He had. He was on the Sausage Fest podcast that we called The Moon Base, or Doctor Who and the Cybermen. Because we did, mm-hmm. we did, we even did an MST3K recording to that story, which I still have not edited and put up for our Patreon people. So please remember our new Patreon page, because unless there are more of you, I'm not going to do these things. Um, available at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Actually, I will continue doing them. It's just, 
you know, you get bogged down with work and you end up coming down with tuberculosis and it's life. just difficult to do anything. Yeah, life. Yeah. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive among other possible goodies a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Because we know, we know, we know, we feel your pain. We know. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. We also have a new discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. And best of all, it's hosted on Goodreads. You can find us there at (gasps) tinyurl.com. Let me try that again. <laughs> yeah, that's Could, it. Wait, which, which address is that? <laughs> oh, God, that was awful. Tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. Now I can't take it out because that was too funny. In fact, we expect you to go to that discussion group. Come for the humor, stay for the sonorous intonations. <laughs> yes, because we have a lot of those. The wildly... Now you've got me doing it. The wildly inaccurately named monster season of Doctor Who continues now by introducing yet another set of non-monsters with Brian Hale's novelization of The Ice Warriors. Without further ado, here's some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Ice Warriors, adapted by Brian Hales from his own script that aired from 11-11-67 to 12-16-67, published by Target Books in March 1976. As of this recording in September of 2018, this title is currently available as a reproduction from BBC Books and as an unabridged audiobook, 144 pages. We're still in what some consider the golden age of Target novelizations, as this is only the third Troughton novelization ever done, behind Abominable Snowmen and the Cybermen in that order, so we have read all the other Troughton novelizations so far that were done in the early part of the Target range. It's only the 21st Target novel published. Not that you could ever figure that out from Target's bizarre numbering system. According to that, it's number 33. But there you go. It's also Brian Hale's first novelization, one of only two that he will do before his untimely death in 1978. Despite having written six stories for the show, his first story was Celestial Toymaker, which we read, but we didn't really talk about him because there were so many things to say about the book version, (laughs) such as it was. Yeah. And The Smugglers was his second one, but we all kind of hated The Smugglers, so we didn't really talk about Hales then either. Remind me which story The Smugglers was. It's the the Pirates one. The Cardinals next to last one. Yeah. A very good Dick's novelization, but not a very good book uh, story, story, period. It, so, yeah. Hales, uh, Hales' scripts are never the same twice, which is odd until, of course, you get to the Ice Warriors. Then you get two Ice Warriors stories that are very much the same, and you get two Peladon stories that are very much the same. But let's talk about them anyway. Hales was born March 7th, 1941. He originally wanted to be a sculptor. He actually taught art in Canada for a while, but after becoming a schoolmaster, he soon became a fairly prolific writer for TV, radio, and the big screen, including scripts for Doomwatch and Zed Cars, a serial called The Moon Stallion, which starred a very young Sarah Sutton before she became a Doctor Who companion. In fact, Allison, you remember her? She was Nyssa in that last Tom Baker story that we watched at oh, Chicago Tardis yeah, last okay. year. And the movie is Nothing But the Night and the Warlords of Atlantis, which is actually better than it sounds. For this show, he would contribute two noteworthy creations, the feudal planet Peladon, which we'll visit in the third Doctor books, and the Ice Warriors, 
themselves. The Ice Warriors came about because without Daleks, this show really needed some more major villains, and there are only so many Cybermen stories that can be written, even <laughs> though they seem not to have caught that idea in the 60s, because no. they did a whole hell of them. More, more, more. We've got more coming, believe it or not. <laughs> he didn't like it. He didn't like and it. Obviously. Okay. Hales was asked to create one, and he was inspired by an article about a preserved woolly mammoth found in the ice in 1900. Couple that with speculation of what sort of race could have thrived in the climates of Mars, and the result was his concept of a partially cybernetic race. Luckily, costume designer Martin Ball thought of the Ice Warriors as more of a reptilian race that thrived on cold. And I say luckily, because the original concept sounds a little too much like the Ice of the Cybermen for comfort. I mean, they still have those weird claw hands, though. They do, and they're still kind of cybernized, mm-hmm. but they're not cybernetic or cyborgs in the same way. <clears throat> no. Isn't this like a 60s and 70s DC Comics thing where a lot of the alien species have very reptilian and or bird-like features? Yeah. That's kind of their go-to it kinda alien is. design. I, I think in this case, though, it was more that... That was a beak. Yeah. I think it was more that they wanted to do... The costume designer wanted to do something new and different and managed it. As with so many stories from this era, this one is missing episodes two and three. But they have all been released on DVD with the missing ones fully and very competently animated. They're quite nice. The Ice Warriors as a race proved very popular, appearing three more times in the classic series with a cameo in Troughton's final story, and they were due to be brought back in 1986 during the abortive season 23. We will be reading a book with them from that abortive series because it actually got novelized. And for us novices, when you say an aborted season, what does that mean? It is a very long story, but let's say the Doctor Who came close to being cancelled. Uh, after season 22. They started planning season 23. They got so far as to commission four scripts. Then they were told they weren't coming back for 18 months and were being put on hiatus. When they did come back, they had not produced those stories. They instead came back with something called Trial of a Time Lord, which, if you think of it, is a little on the nose. <laughs> yeah, but those four stories, well, three of them, got novelized. Okay. So, so they were, were not produced? No. We will be reading the lost stories in order, because in story order, that's where they go. The Ice Warriors were brought back in 2013's Cold War, where we finally got to see what they look like without their carapace. And again, in 2017's Empress of Mars, where we finally saw the female of the species. And boy, honey. (laughs) Ooh. Presumably deadlier? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, the Ice Warriors are pretty deadly themselves. The females have razor-sharp teeth and are just like, ah! And, you know, kind of insert anti-feminist joke here. But, yeah, it's it's got that feel to it because it takes place in Victorian Mars. Klingon-esque, sort of? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Now, who needs to read the back cover? Allison, you didn't read the back cover last time, I have time, gotten away with not doing it several times. Yeah, and we have the physical copy there. Oh, fancy. All right. The world is held in the grip of a second ice age and faces total destruction from the rapidly advancing glaciers. Doctor Who, in all caps, with (laughs) Victoria and Jamie, lands at a top scientific base in England where they have just unearthed an ancient ice warrior, excuse me, an ancient ice warrior, (laughs) aliens, capital A, from Mars, preserved in the ice for centuries and now revitalized, the ice warriors feel ready to take over. Now, I, I just, well, I'll get there in a moment. Can the Doctor overcome these warlike Martians and halt the relentless approach of ice glaciers? 
go back just a moment. I really like this bit about, and now revitalize the Ice Warriors feel ready to take over. It's like an Elk Seltzer commercial. <laughs> or maybe some kind of, you know, B12 well, complex. Or, yes, or just, you know, after this vitamin B complex, you'll feel revitalized. You'll feel ready to take over. It's like a, you know, a lean-in supplement yes, or it's something. Like, take x lax for yes. that get-up-and-go feeling. I was uh, rather annoyed <laughs> of it. <laughs> <laughs> to get up and go from those remarks, I, was, <laughs> I thought that the progressive revelation in, of the plot was actually not bad, so I was kind of annoyed that I already knew all of this before I started reading it. From the... Yes, well, it's top scientific base in England, and you don't know right away that you that's the not. island they're on. It could be, you know, any number of islands with that name, etc. You don't know yes. that they're dealing with, uh, you know, aliens from Mars and that. Yeah, um, and that's almost superfluous. You don't. It doesn't matter that they're in England. It could be no. any planet, anywhere. Glaciers are taking over the planet. Not a bad blurb, but I'm not a fan of giving away all the plot elements in the back cover. And the blurbs, oh, so often do. Mm-hmm. Which is why probably quite soon I'll start giving you copies without the blurbs. And in at least two cases, I'm going to give you copies without the covers because I want you to be surprised by what you find between the uh, covers. I did like oh. the cover art a lot. That's what um, she said. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Um, I think it's supposed to be Victoria screaming, but she just looks really, really exasperated, like she's yelling at somebody to, for crying out loud, get a move on, like hurry up. Pop star, and she's so excited to see him. Uh-huh. Oh my god. And and he's kind of all bright and sparkly yeah, like yeah. a uh, Twilight vampire. Yeah. Except that's not how those weapons work. They don't leave any sort of chemtrail like that that turn the frogs gay. I'm sorry, I had to get a Alex Jones thing in there while he's still relevant. Ah. Uh. Was he ever Wait, did he, is he the one who started that? Yes, he was the one who started like that. Like in the 90s? He started yeah, it in. Oh, I think wow. so. I think so. I'm sure someone will tell us otherwise. <sighs> Actually, somebody, somebody very sweet. It was at least 1998. Somebody very sweet wrote into our Facebook page today to correct something, a mistake that I made months ago. In fact, where's my phone? I just want to, I just want to thank this person on air because I'm like, whoa. Okay, that was actually kind of funny because he said, I'm late to the party, but here you go. If we didn't make errors, how could other people feel good about themselves? Exactly, that's what we're here for. If other people didn't make errors, how could I feel good about myself? We are here to do that. That is our raison d'etre. Here it is. If they're correcting us, that means they're at least listening. Tomb of the Cybermen. We told you we were mellow this evening. Oh, you'll get this. He said, it's a bit late, I know. The stuffed in the fridge thing is Kyle Rayner, but it was his girlfriend, not his mother. Oh, thank you. No, I did not pretend to know correct, uh, yeah, correct information I, on that. And, and now I you say Rayner, like, oh, yes. Yes, I thought it was his mother. So, yeah. So, kind of a thing. No, thank you. That's... Well, impressions. Don, what were your first impressions when um, you saw that cover and you saw just, Victoria's uh, I, I do. look? I do like <laughs> the cover. Um kind of something we've been annoyed with in the past is the uh, the very on-the-nose naming of things. The Ice Warriors. And it's like, these are reptilian dudes that shoot sonic blasts at you. To... But yes, yeah. they were found in ice, so they are the Ice Warriors. Of course they are. Um, They're ice adjacent. Yeah! Views, views, views. Ice adjacent. <laughs> I guess it's better than some yeah reptilian name. But... Um, I don't know. What's weird about them is that late in later stories, they were referred to themselves that way. That's what I was going to ask. It's like, why would they not... Yeah. How do they refer weird. to themselves if... 
Well, we don't really have a timeline for this story, though I'm guessing it's 35th century. I didn't really look that part up for some reason. But the next time we see them, it will be closer to our own time. Okay. Which means they're calling themselves Ice Warriors before they've been dubbed Ice Warriors. But aren't they also just Martians? Yeah. So. <laughs> yes. But that's the, our name. The books in the 90s. That's our god of war. The books in <laughs> the guess. 90s will call them Martians. The books in the 90s will also call the um, Silurians Earth Reptiles. Because Silurian is wrong. And Eocene is wrong. Every Earth name that's been given them is wrong. As opposed to <laughs> what are the reptiles then? Are those yeah. the, well, the, Martian reptiles? Well, yeah, true. yeah, yeah. They're they're like the, a different species of the same genus or something. I don't know. Either way, anyway. Um, no, I I um like Allison said though I. I really enjoyed where the story went and how it got there. But yeah, the blurb kind of gave away a lot of the first third of the book. Yeah, it does. Forgive me, you just told us this, but I wasn't listening. Um, <laughs> of course Hales not. wrote the script and the novelization, right? He did. Okay. Yes. Yeah, he, uh, he did. It actually had the feel of someone rescuing a very boring story from itself. So mm-hmm. I actually... Uh-huh. I expected it to be an adaptation of someone else's script because when you promised us that there would be more base under siege stories, uh, boy, did you uh, promise us accurately. (laughs) First sentence, stand by all personnel, base evacuation procedure phase one. Yeah, (laughs) jump right in there. Like, oh, look, we're running through tunnels. Now they're ice tunnels instead of sea cave Uh tunnels or monastery tunnels or mountain cave tunnels, etc. I, I I felt it moved along quite breezily and wittily, but I was so sick of the individual set pieces and story elements that we've seen so much of so recently. Okay. Yeah, so that I actually it. thought that he was spicing up a rather blah script by someone else. Well, remember what Trey Corte has said about this, uh, about the Troughton run. He says that it's some of the worst written scripts in the series history. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I mean, Trey and I tend to disagree on a lot of stories. But I would say that, yeah, it is Troughton's performance that tends to save things. In this particular case, it is such a base under siege story, but there are some differences in it. And it wasn't a bad story. I felt It felt unfortunate to this book that it was where it is in the sequence. It's yeah. just so similar. So many of the elements are, are similar to or identical to ones we've read in the last eight or ten stories, very Agreed, recently. Yeah. Agreed. And so much so that even Jamie says, oh, you, you've materialized this just further down the mountain. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we're not in the Himalayas anymore. I, I really did like when they, the, the scientists and soldiers from India, where did you come from? Oh, we've been, uh, you know, that you don't know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. we've been on a retreat in Tibet. Yes. <laughs> it, 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 even worse than the televised story, he actually calls them sanctifiers. Which, when I first saw it, I had to look that up, and I was like, he didn't just call them sanctifiers. Okay. Um, the doctor, he refers to his he party. and his party as sanctifiers, mm. and it's like, uh, no, I have, I, yeah. No one's going to believe Jamie has taken a, a vow of chastity. <laughs> and that or obedience. No. Or obedience. Or silence. Or anything else. No. He's very, uh, yeah. It might, possibly poverty. Harvard, well, yeah. It'll be because of that. <laughs> he is a he is a bear of wee brain, but uh, <laughs> maybe that sort of mental poverty of some sort. It does plunge us right in, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right I thought some it. effective techno babble that is mm-hmm. 
just enough seventh grade science that I don't remember correctly that it was pleasantly <laughs> convincing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we get, and he even gives the computer a name Echo. in this version, Echo. I which thought is lovely. At first he was drawing a parallel between Garrett and the computer, refers mm-hmm. to her prim spectacles and Echo's video eye and her terse comments and Echo's crisp comments without a trace of emotion. Right. So I thought the computer and her were both going to turn out to be evil. So. Oh. And I was wrong. I could see that. Um, no, it becomes very clear very soon on screen that they're just, everybody in the space is sycophantically in love with the computer. I think I just repeated myself. That was redundant. Yeah, if they're sycophants of the computer, of course, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, they're the way about this computer the way I am about the grammar in that sentence. They're falling all over it. <laughs> there we go. And once again, I'm like, oh, gee, I wonder if the computer will turn out to be evil or not as effective as they hope. Yeah. <sighs> well, and we, well, because we've just, we've just been through yeah. a couple, at least a couple of those recently. That's true. That's true. Like I said, it's not a bad story element to do, but... No, no, but you're right. It is a trope the Doctor Who has already done before. Um, not better, necessarily, but that certainly has been done. It's also nice, as you said, uh, Dalton, that he unrolls it very slowly and carefully. That we get those yeah. mentions of Penley, for instance, and you're like, mm-hmm. who's Penley? And, ooh, yeah. there's a scandal afoot. Ooh, what's this yeah. going on? Yeah, I did feel at, at times that there were lots of characters being introduced, and I was getting a little confused here and there, but yeah. eventually it was like, oh, these these are weaving together nicely. Mm-hmm. Just the right proportion of yeah. personality and establishing the dynamics between the characters who are already on the base without... without Making an over without creating overly intricate backstories, etc. It was just enough to make you interested in the dynamics. Mm-hmm. And something that I'm very grateful to Hales for doing is with this first chapter, he did something that um, I had trouble with in televised story. I was never able to visualize exactly where they were, what was happening, and all of that. And what he tells us in prose is so clear. It's like, mm-hmm. oh. They're specifically here. This is yes, happening. Yes. The base is for this. Right. The base that they're in is this house. It's under a dome. Yeah. You can't really get some of that stuff on off the screen version because it's right. uh, it, it's not a badly shot story, but it's hard to shoot that sort Just of thing. Lacking. But not in love bit. with his own with his own voice either. It's no, not at all. Breezy and pleasant. And yeah. he knows that this is the sort of information the reader needs because the very next chunk of the chapter is all about what's happening in pretty solid detail, which was missing from the uh, televised story, so I'm very happy to see that. I thought this was a bit gratuitous. In the ionization room, the tension, pardon me, the tension was electric. (laughs) (laughs) Groaned a bit out loud. Yes, as the plug said to the socket, how is it for you, darling? Electric. Sorry, it's a very old young one's uh, joke, which sounds solipsistic, but there you go. (laughs) There's also something else that gets answered in this version that I don't remember being answered in the televised version, which is why they don't just use heat to um, melt all the glaciers, and it's because, well, you'll flood the whole damn country. Yeah, global warming. Yeah, yeah, and and it's weird that this is kind of the opposite of global warming, that... 
Um, it's much like the, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this Danny Boyle um, science fiction movie, Sunshine. Um, it's brilliant and it's disturbing, but it's all about the sun getting cooler. Isn't this a trope of 60s and 70s sci-fi, the second ice age? Yes. And, this, and, and the planet getting hotter. Because there's also, uh, Allison, do you need some of this? No. There's also a movie called The The Day the Earth Burned, something like that. It's a British film from around the same time, and it's particularly effective too. But the planet is going towards the sun, um, the sunshine, the, the sun has to be kind of re-sparked. Here, it's the Second Ice Age. Which, and I, I told Danny the plot of the story, and he said, Second Ice Age? We're in an ice age, and it's not the second one. And I was like, yeah, I know. But roll with it. You know. Yeah. Science. For Doctor Who. We've learned more <laughs> since then. So exactly. That's okay. So why would that mean there'd be <laughs> polar bears in England? I don't know. Yeah. I still can't get around that. A nice sense of menace, though, of like the slow, inexorable advance of the glaciers. That, mm-hmm. That's not a fast-moving enemy to... To, to make interesting, and I thought right. Hales did it effectively. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's always hanging there, literally hanging there over them, mm-hmm. ready to drop. The idea that yeah, if this machine clock. is yeah, incapacitated, sort of that they won't die right away, but if this machine fails, then they may as well just sit back and wait for it to happen. Yeah, life will be intolerable for the, those who survive, yeah. Um... <laughs> Uh, what else? Let's talk about things that stood out to us that we really, really liked. Let's start there. Well, just talking earlier about the the kind of relationship of everyone to the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever uh, Penley leaves, it's because everyone is so into the computer, mm-hmm. and part like major plot points in the story are things that were only solved because of humans, yes. not because of the computer. Exactly. Um, so I really like how they, they came back to that. But, for instance, the, what was it, the Omega Factor? Oh, yeah. The fact that <clears throat> the doctor, even, couldn't figure out all these mathematical notations and things without something that another person had just done. Yeah. And the computer itself couldn't figure it. And the amazing thing there is the doctor keeps saying, oh, you need to get an expert in. And normally you'd react to that and say, doctor, you're the expert who normally comes in. But he means it. He's not getting that one thing that Penley, a human, has figured out. Yeah. Um, So I think that that, the way they wrapped it up in the end and how he kind of gets his comeuppance and gets, you know, Mm -hmm. um, ends up becoming the leader. um, Kind of, I don't know. Or at least comes close to it. I mean, he's not taking over for Clint. No. But... You get the sense that their working relationship is going to be a little more, uh, if not friendly, at least more understanding. Yeah, and being able to work together. So mm-hmm. exactly, um, they'll yeah. be more collegial, maybe. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. So there is that for sure. Uh, what else? Funny had a nice, uh, breezy way of describing physical humor mm-hmm. so i think my favorite line from the book is a small group of grimly determined men erupted from a corner passageway and charged straight at the doctor and his young friends and of course they passed them by and then the <laughs> woman comes by without breaking gate and you know attaches like you know badges to them and keeps going like oh mm-hmm. we're on ship right. number seven like and inventory okay <laughs> yes you yeah. and you and but you. it was exactly. you know, it's hard to describe physical humor like that and i thought he did yeah, it very it well mm-hmm. 
Victoria throws a snowball at the doctor in mid-sentence and he just ducks and yes. goes on yes. about his way, <laughs> which she doesn't do on screen. The TARDIS landing sideways, which is just hilarious. So good. <laughs> I love the, the description of the Doctor as a ragged clown. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those I, descriptions have not calcified yet. Because, well, for one thing, it's only the third Troughton novel. Yeah. And Dix has only been at one of them. By the way, I uh, recently purchased Tom Baker's first season on um, Blu-ray. And... There was a set of documentaries that was done on the DVD some time ago called On Target. And they did an interview with Terrence Dix, which I would love to do with you someday, Mr. Dix. So please bear us in mind. I'm sorry about all the Dix jokes, but we can't do it. What if he listens to the previous episodes about his books? Well, I... are ruined. Well, that's true. John Peel seems to think that he'd have a good sense of humor about it. Then again, he could just think we're a bunch of upstart assholes, which we are. Mm -hmm. Um... But they had a feature on Ian Martyr as well, and the next book is going to be Ian Martyr, again. Um, But Dix said that the reason why he uses these stock descriptions is because, hey, if you've described it well once, why not use that description over and over again? So greasing, the groaning, wheezing sound of the TARDIS, yeah. Troughton is not a Cosmic Hobo in this book. He's instead a clownish figure, because Cosmic Hobo is Dix. And he hasn't used it yet, because we didn't see it in Abominable yeah. Snowman. But even clowns are kind of hoboish. Yeah, that's true. He has his hat back, I notice. Yeah. Briefly. <laughs> it goes away again, thank God, because I hate that hat. <laughs> I mean, in terms of elements that I'm tired of, but it's not Hale's fault, necessarily. But, you know, in the same way that in a mid-19th century... Romantic novel, there's always some lunatic or screaming disabled person in the attic. There's always some robot or alien thawing out or coming online or something in the, oh. the, in the recent books. Where something's always, you know, coming out of its dormant state in a way that, you know, they bring in the... That is the, What they're referring to as the ice warrior and thinking, oh, I wonder if he will wake up. <laughs> what a shock it will be! <laughs> but once again, that's the sequence in which I'm reading them. And uh... mm-hmm. well, imagine if you were a viewer in the '60s, and and this is the point at which, say, John Peel got sick of the show. He was like, "Oh, I can't stand Tron's performance," and he was probably thinking these stories are getting repetitive, formulaic. Yeah. yeah. But when you say it's a monster season, but you feel it's badly named, how? In what way, like, what, what do you define the monster episode? Like, to me, I'm, at first, they think of the, the ice warriors are sort of monsters. Yeah, I don't think of them different. as monsters. I think of them as another alien race. The Daleks barely qualify as a monster because they're monstrous, but they're not necessarily, you know, some aberration. Well, they kind of are. Never mind. I just taught myself out of that one. Well, there's nothing yet. What are you calling a monster yeah. in, in this story? Yes. Well... Nothing in this story. I think the Ice Warriors just happen to be another oh, race. In the Doctor Who universe. In the Doctor Who universe. Um, a monster would be like, oh, now I'm going to talk myself out of that one too. Um, Kroll from the Power of Kroll, which is just this big wavy thing. The crinoid, which are sentient plants that eat animals. Um, most of the examples I'm coming up with are from the Tom Baker era. But... An alien species is not a monster if it's sentient? uh, See, you've got me over a barrel there, Allison. And the reason why... Not really what I was going for at all. Thank you. Please resume your previous You've got a point, though. You've got a very good point. And that's that Audible.com 
released a box set called The Monster Set. And it is it ends with this novelization, and it goes back through the last three. So it's including the Abominable Snowmen, the Cybermen, and the one before that... No, Tomb of the Cybermen was the one before that, and the one before that was... Couldn't have been Evil of the Daleks. <laughs> we just did these in the last month. Tomb of the Cybermen, Abominable Snowmen, Ice Warriors. Yeah, but was there anything in between? No? So we've we're only Cybermen, Abominable Snowmen. So we're only three stories in. Okay. Because before that was Faceless One. I think the problem I have with calling this the monster season is that that implies there's going to be something monstrous every single story and that's not the case at all well uh, that's not true either let's just say this next story enemy of the world doesn't have alien creatures in it all of the evil is earthbound it's human based which is why you can't really call this the monster season that being said if we're talking about monstrous actions uh, god i just think it's badly named okay I, I would probably be happier if every single story had something monstrous or alien. Well, whenever I think of a monster, I think of something supernatural or mutated, there we go. genetically altered, or something like that. Everything we've experienced, well, the Daleks are like the only thing that's They fit that. The, the Cybermen are... They're, it's, it's biomechanical, though. It's not necessarily like a... Yeah. Like you said, an aberration or something. Sort of self-inflicted like, mutation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ice warriors aren't that. The abominable snowmen, those were robots. Mm-hmm. That a robot is not but necessarily a monster. You, you had the great intelligence, and that very much is a monster. It's one of the True. old gods. Maybe, but like... <laughs> yeah, you see them. I think what most people would identify as the monster in that story is the abominable snowmen. Mm-hmm. The actual... Yetis. And I think that's what the producers intended too. So, yeah, it's I don't know, monster maybe not the right word, and that might be what is kind of making you feel. I think that is the problem. Is like, well, and thinking ahead to what's coming. I was thinking, yeah, that we might have a difference in perspective of what the characters initially think is going on versus what's revealed at the end. That mm-hmm. for most of the stories they feel like they're up against a monster. Mm-hmm. But then it often turns out to be something else. Turns right. out to be something mechanical. Turns out to be an alien species. Something like that. But if that's just yeah. revealed at the end, if it was a story where, yeah. for most of the narrative, the characters thought they were dealing with monsters, mm-hmm. it's really a matter of technically at the end it's something different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, everything they've experienced so far has been highly intelligent. So. That is true. <laughs> that is true, actually. Yeah. Not the monsters can't be well... I, I think it's mainly flogged I may have swallowed the cr- what? So we flogged that horse to hamburger. Well, I think so. I, I, I think it's just that I've swallowed the Kool-Aid on the uh, general fan notion that it can't really be called a monster season if you have enemy of the world plunked down in the middle of it. Because that's not a monster story. Oh. Let me think on this for a little while because, yeah, oh, right, right, right. The next one's going to be that, and then we're going to be followed by that. So, yeah, Enemy of the World is the only outlier. But it's a hell of an outlier. It's like saying, oh, we're going to have six stories about sex. Oh, but the third one's just going to be about masturbation. Which season is this? 
Uh, well, <laughs> the lost season. Yeah, you'll, you will know it when you see it. Yes. Um, anyway, back to what we were talking about. The <laughs> I see what you did there. Oh my! Oh my goodness! He's faster than I am. Uh, that's for sure. Oh, that's what she said. <laughs> How are the regulars this time? Let's talk about Victoria because Victoria, we've seen evolving, changing, getting better, and suddenly in this story. <sighs> That was a well trained Yeah, that was... Suddenly, her. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I don't know. She tried to escape. There was at least that. Mm-hmm. She failed. Yes. But and she it, seems to have a blood pressure problem because she keeps fainting. Yeah. Which I can't see yeah. evidence of in the televised version. Hales put that out. I actually was wondering, now on screen, is she wearing a corset? So is it something where every time she exerts herself, <laughs> she just can't get enough oxygen to the blood? Is it just to, give her, to give her something more to do? Because it might like, be. Otherwise, if you take out her just fainting and screaming at everything, she's not there. I, no. I do like the cover where I feel like it was in some ways right. sarcastic, but instead of... It is. I think it's, her hands are supposed to be bound and she's screaming, but it looks like she's cupping her hands to yell at someone. Believe it or not, that's because from she's a photo reference. Uh, so there's a photo out there I, somewhere. I did appreciate of... the annoyance of... She's being... I... I, I I really made some stuff up here saying she is annoyed at all the scripted screaming and passing out. I'm <laughs> she's, she's halfway through the season. She's yelling at the writers, oh, for crying out loud, is this all that you have? Well, that is something that Deborah Watling said. She said that she spent that entire year screaming. Yeah. And she's absolutely right, except That's for the true. next story, which she doesn't. Find something for her to do. Well, uh, here's the thing, and this is something that was talked about in the um, Tom Baker Blu-ray set, too. It's pretty easy to write for a doctor and one companion. It's exponentially more difficult with each companion you add. So the fact that the Trouton stories work as well as they do with the doctor and two, always, is kind of amazing. No, no, no. <laughs> we have yeah. just been advised to talk to the hand, just oh, if you could sure see. Yes. This series starts off with two, three companions. Yes, it does, and it wasn't very good, was it? Meh. <laughs> no, but once it was down to Ian and Parker, We just got a full-on finger wave. Oh, I thought you were talking... Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were talking about Ben and Polly. No. And then Jamie. No, Ian and Barbara, like, starting from the You're very right. beginning. You're right. Susan, Susan was mid, but then when it was just Ian and Barbara and the it doctor, worked. And Vicky. it worked, well, yes, Vicky, yeah. to some extent, Vicky ended up being kind of screamy, too, but right. to some extent, yeah, there were parts early on where it was actually really good with multiple companions. This is yeah. true. So, it went, they, they play with each other. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. They play off of each other, and so it's like, if they could do it before, why yeah. is keeping them from doing it I'm hoping that happens with the new series because she has three yeah. companions now. I do understand it is harder to have more chemistry with more people, but if you're going to spend time having them on screen at all, invest in them. Well, I will say this. Victoria is handled better on the page than she is on screen. Because even though she, she doesn't, she doesn't faint or anything, but at least she's there for the whole story, whereas... Um, Deborah Watling couldn't be there for all the taping of episode six, so she's sent back to the TARDIS off screen, which is just weird. 
Uh, it rarely happens. And one other thing. When Jamie sits down in the vibro chair, they're not fighting over who gets to have a turn in the vibro chair. He sits there and says, So, Victoria, you notice those those outfits that those lassies were wearing? And she says, Yes, I did, Jamie McCrimmon. And I'm not going to wear anything like that. And it's this sexist thing. Uh, Victoria? What? You see how those lassies were dressed? Yes, I did. And trust you to think of something like that. Well, I could help thinking about it. Well, I think it's disgusting, wearing that kind of thing. So it is. So it is. You, uh, you don't see yourself dressed like that, then. Jamie! Oh, I'm sorry. It was uh, just an idea. We will now change the subject, please. Well, I actually oh, thought that. it was kind of a fun... They had a fun dynamic here yeah. of... You know, the world is in danger of being destroyed. They're just having fun playing with the yes. chair. They had a snowball fight earlier, yes, and I thought they're like siblings. I, I, yes, I enjoy their sort of obliviousness of yeah. the impending yeah. doom. Whereas on screen, Jamie is kind of like, "Wouldn't you wear something like that?" And she's like, "No, I would not." He's being kind of a creeper about the whole yeah. thing. Now, is she? So have it has some kind of back and forth. You get the characterization. Yeah. You have yeah. their relationship developing. And once again, I'm surprised that the screenwriter or the scriptwriter and the novelist are the same person. Mm-hmm. Because that sounds like someone who was trying to paper over a dynamic or a scene they didn't really like that much. Which I think is the case. Mm-hmm. I think Brian Howes looked back at his original scripts and said, oh, you know what? I can do better what than What was this. I thinking? Well, I yeah. appreciate that. And that, I, I very much appreciate that. Any Doctor Who writer that can do that. Now, is I, this once again a companion who is a, quote, teenage girl, unquote, who's somewhere between 11 and 26? Yeah. So I'm kind of, I was kind of confused here. At the beginning, she was described as doll-like. Yes. But then she's like getting into snowball fights and smarting off or something. I thought, well, maybe she's actually much younger than I had read her before. We're never given her age. As, as far as I, I know, we're not. Vicky, somebody similar like her. Yeah. Vicky, 13? Is she yeah. more like 19? And I or, don't remember if anyone gives I thought us Susan was like 13 and they marry her off. You and... know, I think we'll probably get an age from Ian Martyr next time. Because he's got that analytical mind going. He doesn't like unanswered questions like right. that. So he may very well give her an age. I, I'm wondering. Let me double check. Oh, and it's confusing, too, because we've gotten some kind of hint that her upbringing with her father, she was a little more, uh, I don't, like, she was interested in science and learning and yes. things like that. And now it's kind of just stripped away and, it's a little there, but overall, it's just, she's just... Yeah. yeah, she said, you know, scientists are all the same. They're forever shouting Eureka or something. Which, on the one hand, was kind of funny. On the other hand, I thought, but I thought but you were interested in I thought you were science. science. Right. Yeah, yes. exactly. All right, let me see if I can find something about her I thought you were the age. science. Yes. Can you paint with all the colors of the science? Can you paint with all the colors of the science? This exterior hides an inner strength that crops up when needed. Yep, that's... I think we're dealing with a story where it just kind of gave out, <laughs> because she has been through a lot, the poor dear. However. I don't think it's uh, a problem at all to have a young teen companion who seems kind of childlike in that way. It's when they go back and forth that it becomes kind of weird and creepy. Yeah. They live in this weird middle ground, and you don't know how to take it. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know she played Victoria Waterfield in an audio drama again. Um, Companion Chronicles, it's generally the companions themselves reading the story, doing a dramatic reading of the story. But she was in a full audio drama um, 
in which Victoria Waterfield meets the Sixth Doctor and Perry uh, because she's campaigning against nuclear waste because, well, you'll find out. Because who's really excited about nuclear waste? Yay, exactly. nuclear waste! Well, there's, up with. I just realized I was about it's to... It's not speak. really a problem. Oh, thank God. No one's listening because I was about to spoil something. Who's not listening? <laughs> 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 anyway. <laughs> I'm not seeing any age for this character. And you're no, right. She's yeah. eternal. Yeah. It's just hard to tell, isn't it? Because she sometimes acts very mature and sometimes acts like this, you know. Which I thought was done effectively mm-hmm. several times with Vicky. Yeah. You know, where she's very smart. But very immature, and the way that works. But this, it, it would have been extra creepy if there was a scene in the book where Jamie is like, kind of vaguely hitting on her yeah. for, after she's been so childlike in this story. Yes, which is probably why it's not in the t- in the print version. Is there something going on with uh, Jamie? The actors? Yeah. No. Because he gets knocked out and was out for. Oh 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 oh! Was he on vacation? You know. uh, well, because that's usually have. what happens yeah, if they're on vacation. Have, I don't think so. I mean, and I don't know why I didn't really look up those details this time. But um, normally it gives them on Wikipedia I mean, when I look. A lot and of then... his performance in this would be lying on an air mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, here, go lay in this tube over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, and it makes you wonder why. Why he put up with it so long as he did, too. I mean, they don't have him scream as often, but he's not doing much better than Victoria. Not now. really. Let me double-check that, because now I'm interested. Because you're right, that would normally be... The case. Uh, yeah, that would definitely be um, the case of somebody going on vacation and for the week. And is kind of, as I'm saying, give Victoria more to do. Especially if Jamie's knocked out for half of it. Yeah. And she doesn't... Well, she is our bridge to the ice warriors. She is, but she's still yeah. just a damsel in distress. Yeah, there is that. There is very much that, I'm afraid. Um, when the ice warriors return, the companion who is around when they do isn't that sort of companion. So it's a very different dynamic, indeed. Um, I'm looking to see whether or not he was on vacation. It doesn't look like he was. <laughs> You're looking through the, the personnel files. He just kind of seems like he was on vacation. Man, they must have had great contracts. They could just go on vacation in the middle of the story. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm just thinking, you're in. You're introducing us to, like, 15 new characters for these, like, how many episodes? Yeah. And then your actors that are in every story, you're having faint and yeah. <laughs> being stunned by... Well... Speaking of which, what did we think of those secondary characters? Because when people remember the televised story, they remember Clint, and they remember uh, Jan, and they remember yeah. Penley, and they remember mm-hmm. the Scottish guy, um, Store. They remember these characters because mm-hmm. they're all played by really, really good actors. I thought that was communicated. I mean, obviously we don't have the phrase, yeah. played by a really good actor, but I definitely yeah. got the sense of, oh, these are great bit parts. Yeah. Or great guest star roles. So much so that Clint, on screen, has a cane and a limp. Mm. And it's one of those kind of, you know, damaged mm-hmm. war hero kind mm-hmm. of things. And it adds a lot to his character. And it's I was kept mm-hmm. waiting for a description of it in the book, and it never mm-hmm. happens. And it's because the description of the character on the page is enough to carry it. Yeah. But see, that just conflicts me with his, like, obedience and love for the computer. 
computer game. Because well, a character like that, you would think, would be have more gall and be able to make more decisions and just, wouldn't depend so much. It's just more over reliance on a tool than obedience. Right. Yeah. Well, and everyone else is obedient to him. I, but. I kind of misspoke there. When I said damage war here, I mean something, someone that some, everybody looks up to, but he himself looks up to the computer just as much as they okay. do and they idolize it. In fact, that's the one thing that I think is missing from this book. We don't get enough of a description of the pre-Ice Age computerized society that Penley is reacting against mm. and that Clint and Jan are both um, are products of. In fact, store. It knocked me on the floor when I it knocked me on the floor. Store. It knocked me on the floor when <laughs> it said something along the lines of they were hiding in his plant museum, and mm-hmm. he he was keeping this plant museum and it was very anti. And everyone thinks it's very bizarre and yeah. strange to just have a room with plants in it. Yeah, and I was like, it's it's an arboretum, or or a greenhouse, one or the other. That that sounds interesting. That's an interesting character beat. And even when he finds out they're alien, he's like, oh, you know, maybe they'll have some way to help Yon Wee Lassie. No, Yon Wee Lad, or whatever they're calling him. Hawkeye, and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting that Scottish accent pretty thick in this story. But they are memorable secondary characters. They don't need a lot of backstory, but they're pretty well-rounded. Yeah, well, they they are actually doing a lot. Yeah, yeah, they are. They have parts to play. Yeah, they're so, not screaming and they're not yeah. knocked out. The doctor has a lot to do, though. He gets some really great lines, like, "Why don't you label your doors or something?" <laughs> yes, I did love that they <laughs> called him to the meeting, and it uh, was a good clincher detail. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where is it to tell him where it was. It was the beginning of chapter three. Why are you late? <laughs> Looking for the meeting. Yes. He ha- he's a lot more proactive in the story than he has been in the ones that we've read so far for the Trotton Doctor. Yeah. He's. Um, I thought it was kind of a perplexing shift in the story that, once again, I thought was papering over another writer's story that Hales didn't like, but maybe which is a self-loathing issue with his previous script. Um, <laughs> what was it? He goes out of his way to show how very smart and well-informed the doctor is about you know, these areas of science, of diagnosing the problem that Clint is impressed and nothing impresses Clint. Right. Um, and I think it, it seemed to all be setting up this radical shift where we had some, you know, some very good, like I said, seventh grade science techno babble that doesn't entirely make sense, but gives the impression of making sense. Mm-hmm. And then the doctor makes this, you know, someone, uh, the doctor figures out, right, the, the Ice Warrior's helmet is uh, somehow electrified. Mm-hmm. Therefore, this is an alien who landed in a spaceship that probably has a propulsion system that the ionizer will overload and explode yes. and contaminate the earth for centuries. And I thought that was quite a journey he made from electric helmet it's to a, contaminate the earth yes. for centuries. It is a hell of a slippery slope. So it kind of felt like uh, like, like the, the material before that about how the doctor had figured out in nine seconds what the computer <laughs> could not possibly figure it out was all excusing, all convincing us, yes, yes, if the helmet's yes. electric, the doctor's smart enough to know that it will destroy the earth. Yes, but it was a very quickly gotten. Yes, show, yes. Even was, for a six-part story. It's indeed, as they say, that escalated quickly. It, it reminds so. me of that line from How I Met Your Mother. 
holy long walk for a short drink of water, Batman. <laughs> yeah, because it really does it's feel quite that the way. deductive string. It kind of is. Every once in a while you'll get a line like that that just kind of... <laughs> like um, when Varga um, explains what his weapon does, it will disintegrate your brain with sound waves. Oh, like AM radio then? <laughs> that's that's lovely. That sounds Deafening great. you with science? Yes, something like that. It, it, some of them... And all he needs is a mirror, preferably rose yes, tinted up yes. the back of the I thought that was very funny. <laughs> I love that line. Because it's got that little bit of possible raciness to it, but... Well, I didn't even catch up on that if I was just... Well, if it's, it's rose tinted of the magnifying sword, it's like, oh, these, he's lacking in a few areas. It needs to be... It needs to be a Trump mirror. Oh, I totally missed that yes. innuendo. Mm-hmm. Poor little finger. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but it's all age... If, if it is indeed a racy <laughs> joke, it's all age is appropriate because even at 38, I did not catch it at all. Oh, but did you catch? Um, I sincerely hope that Varga wouldn't hump Victoria all the way to the glacier without reason. I did, yes. <laughs> there are a lot of... Uh, Typos in the OCR, in the version that we had, though. I I apologize for Uh, that, because I I had to read half in this and half in the... uh, To the point that I wasn't actually sure if that was the intended word or not. Yeah, it was. It was. And his name is Clint, not Clint. Yes. That came up several times. Yes. I think Store came up as Ston at one point, or some other Vulcan-type name. I don't know if this is an urban legend or a real thing. I think I mentioned it before, but allegedly... The old whatever British equivalent to the comics code was prohibited characters being named Clint because in all caps, the L and the I close yes. together could blend into a U. I've heard and that too. I don't, like I, said, I don't know if it's real or not, but it's a very amusing type it of... Is uh, it's amusing for there to be typographical uh, urban legend like that. Mm-hmm. But I wondered if that was... Uh, it, it was a wink at that that Clint is spelt with an E instead of it an I. It could be. It, it could be. Kind I of a joke. I wouldn't put it past Brian Hales. I mean, he is definitely well well read enough and literate enough. I mean, someone who can come up with a sus to a toy maker with its puns and such, mm-hmm. yeah, or at least the puns that were in the original, not the poor version that we got. Everybody hating on the celestial toy maker. Yeah, well, I know you liked it. But <laughs> really be, yeah. Garbage person liked it. <laughs> garbage person liked it. Not a garbage person. Let's reimagine the celestial toy maker and yeah, make it better. Speaking of things that are better. The doctor has this way of saying something deliberately to set someone off, Mm -hmm. just to see their true reactions. Mm -hmm. He's done this like twice now. I thought it it, was very. I think it's been very effective. Yeah, he did it in Tomb of the Cybermen with um with um with um. Oh my God, Uh, racist stereotype number two. Um, (laughs) You'll have to be a lot more specific, and you'll need a higher number. The Turkish guy. Um. Too much Cybermen. I know, I'm trying to think of this too. I think it's just because I'm late, it's late and I'm tired, but it is, it is, it is Kaftan, Garment, Kaftan, and Klieg. Klieg, that's it. Oh, yes. He sets Klieg off because he says, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe you should rule the world. And Klieg says, maybe I should. Maybe you should follow me. And the doctor says, now I know you're insane. And now I know you're mad. I was just making sure. He does that with Jan. He says something about Penley being a traitor. And she says, he's not a traitor. And he looks at her and says, it's good to know that he's got friends here. Yes. The Matt Smith doctor does exactly the same thing in Mm -hmm. the story of The Lodger. Mm -hmm. 
because, um, oh god, it's, uh, what's his name who does carpool karaoke now? James Corden. James Corden. That's his first appearance in Doctor Who. His girlfriend, then later wife, in that story says something about, you know, I thought about traveling the world, but I never got around to it. And the doctor says something deprecating. It's like, oh, well, of course, you wouldn't be able to really handle it anyway, or something like that. And she says, what would you say something like that for? And he says, and he's looking at something that he's reading, and he says, is it true? And she says, well, of course not. I can do whatever I want. And he just turns and smiles at her with this beautific smile. Hmm. And you're like, ah. And she sees what he's done, Mm -hmm. too. What do you really want to do? Don't laugh. I ain't even told Craig about it. Yeah. I want to work looking after animals. Maybe abroad. I saw this orangutan sanctuary on telly. Oh. Well, stop it. She can't. You need loads of qualifications. Yeah, true. Plus, it's scary. Everyone I know lives around here. Like, Craig got offered a job in London. Better money, didn't take it. What's wrong with staying here? I can't see the point of London. Well, perhaps that's you, then. Perhaps you'll just have to stay here, secure, and a little bit miserable till the day you drop. Better than trying and failing, eh? You think I'd fail? Well, everybody's got dreams, Sophie. Very few are going to achieve them, so why pretend? Perhaps, in the whole wide universe, a call centre is about where you should be. Why are you saying that? That's horrible. Is it true? Of course it's not true. I'm not staying in a call centre all my life. I can do anything I want. Uh, Oh, yeah, right. Oh, oh my God, did you see what he just did? No, sorry, what's happening? It's a second Doctor trait. And it's it's lovely to see it on the page. Yeah. And it's lovely to see that Hales writes the Troughton Doctor really well. It's kind of a shame that we're never going to get another Troughton story written by Hales. I'm kind of relieved they didn't do a Garrett Clint. Penley love triangle. Oh, that would have been just one more tired element. So I thought that showed tremendous restraint, and uh, I appreciated it. That's true. But you notice the Doctor Who doesn't really do that sort of thing very often. It's kind of a good thing. Um, yeah, novelizations tend to always have the people on the base kind of like our ow. exes, or were hooking up, or someone's in love with someone else. In a sort of vague <laughs> I don't remember any hooking way. up on any of these. <laughs> well, maybe you're right though. Um, Subtext. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of sir texts, we have not really said a word about the Ice Warriors, and these are big Mac Daddy villains now. This is their first appearance. I even have an action figure of one up there. That's how popular they are in Doctor Who. He's up there watching over all of you. I was not remotely interested in them. Really? Yeah. Why? Meh, lizard. Another David Ensign Y, another lizard. Fucking lizards. Yeah, I don't know. Another, God damn it. Another giant alien who will try to kill the female companion will not succeed. Yeah. It's just, it was another, it was very similar to the Yetis. They weren't machines exactly. They had technology. It was, okay. and the thing before that was the thing before that. The Cybermen. Yeah. Uh, just another <laughs> big alien or machine thing, whatever. I didn't find that they had much personality, I uh, guess, or a, an interesting agenda, or hmm. anything that made them distinct other than another menacing entity. We will kill you. And we'll, but we'll take you hostage in very incompetent ways. Very contrarian. Yeah. Just yeah. Sing, uh, I guess they do. Although, I, I, I did find a kind of interesting foil with the... the their nature of 
the stalemate that they were having with mm-hmm. the base, mm-hmm. and then the stalemate of the base it's within the base itself. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was probably the only innovation in the story because otherwise it is a base under siege, but they're not taking over the base. No. Mm-hmm. The All Ice right. Warriors never end up in the base, though I seem to have this brief visualization of the Ice Warriors. No, 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 they end up at the base, they don't they? The the of course they do, of course they do. But they're not trying to get in the whole time and then right. finally right. succeed. They just go in, which is even crazier in its own way. We'll just walk up in there, and the doctor kills him with stink bombs. Oh my god, that exchange about the stink bombs. That was kind of funny. You've had a proper English education. Yes. Yes. It's even funnier on screen because she's howling. She's crying during the scene, and she's, ah, that's the thing with the stink bombs. Yes. It's alright. Nothing to be afraid of. Actually, the the characterization that she had of being light and younger, I thought actually worked as a take on her. It was just a very different take than we've seen previously. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. But I think they're all viable takes. Yeah, yeah. It's the vacillation that annoys me, I guess. The number of the Ice Warriors kept... Fluctuating a little bit. Yeah, it, it seemed like, okay, there are six in total, and now they're, okay... One has died, and this one has happened, and but now there are four here. But how? Okay, no. Well, okay. I'm not even going to think about this anymore. There are yeah. ice warriors, and they are doing things. They're like um, photon torpedoes on the Voyager. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> endless. Endless. Just based on this book, it's a surprise that these are big deal recurring villains. Really? Okay. Yeah, I I could kind of see that because I was. I was pleasantly surprised that they come off more differentiated on the page than they do on screen. Mm-hmm. They're given names on screen, as it turns out, but those those names are rarely used, and they all sound the same. Yeah, I think that was where I was having trouble, too. They were mm-hmm. similar to the game. Well, literally on screen, they sound the same, because the Ice Warriors all talk like this. Mm-hmm. Which makes it in very histories. hard. In histories, yes. It's no. very difficult. Very good, I like it's, that. Yeah, I like that too. It's very difficult to watch them on screen. Because it's like, oh my god, speak up and speed up a little bit. It's parcel tongue. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It's parcel tongue. And that doesn't translate to the page too well. Which is kind of good. So I was wondering whether or not they translated to the page better than I did, they do. I did enjoy the description of him. Like hissing loudly, or angrily. <laughs> yes. Like, eh. <laughs> yes. How do you how, yeah. how do you whisper angrily? How do you? Yes. Yeah. Well, but while speak, yes, you but how, hiss that way. But how do you speak? Yeah. How do you hiss way? not angrily? Like, what's a joyful hiss or well, right? their friendly hiss? Their laugh is described that yeah. way. It's like, yeah, yeah, or something like that. I can't, I can't remember how it's loud. I, I know I didn't hear it on screen. They don't laugh on screen. 
uh, at least in the appearances that I've seen. So yeah, it is kind of surprising that they go on to be such big baddies. And I guess too that they don't. Overall, they don't seem as threatening as a lot of any other big bad we've run into. No. They have the sonic weapon. They have the sonic weapon, but if they didn't have that, like, do they have superhuman strength? Or are they... Yeah. Later on, you find out that they are very hard to kill. Yeah. Because they've got those carapaces, and because the suit itself is a cybernetic battle suit. So it's enhancing their strength. The only problem is, when they get out of that suit, they're totally reptilian to the point of almost being snake-like. And they're slippery little devils and can kind of slither wherever they need to. And that's one of the brilliant things about the new series. They render them in CGI and it works really well because you always wonder what's in there. Even when uh, he's described as having a very delicate adjustment on the, the glove for the weapon, you're like, what's in there and why do they have these... And you know, how do you claws. adjust with a claw? With a claw, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it must be Slight that... Slight tapping? Yeah. Like, and it must be that it's a tool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It must be that it's a tool and that's not actually their their skin. It's a carapace. It's like a battle suit. Hmm. Maybe they have What's attachments. Nice? They do have Maybe attachments. Maybe somewhere in their ship frozen is like <laughs> a closet. You're enjoying this way too much. <laughs> I, I have to make them interesting. Yeah, okay, you're making it a lot more I interesting than I got the first paper. Because, they, yeah, they have the attachment for the Sonic thing. They have the attachment for the Jeff Stryker dildo. I'm also like all about <laughs> accessories. Like, when I was a little gay bee, my favorite thing was taking Barbie's shoes off and on. Oh, really? And changing them. You freak you. I always gave her different different uh, color shoes. Or my okay, so the boy toy I had, Legos. <laughs> I like taking their hats or their heads or their hands. <laughs> off their hands. And so you know. Oh my goodness! I across the board. That's how like it all. Is. Yeah, it's just like the the. You're menacing me with like a mechanical claw thing. <laughs> no. I know we've had the macro. <laughs> right. We, we didn't find the macro scary. I just always go back to the Onion editorial by a lobster, for which the headline is "Just you wait till I get these rubber bands off." <laughs> <laughs> Picture their lobster-like yes. impotent motion. Yeah. I guess, oh I guess menace, that, but not much actual threat. I guess the fact that they will just pretty much kill for no no reason is pretty menacing. Yeah, but, but you're right. There's. The menace isn't coming directly from them. The menace is coming from their ship, which is a very different yeah. animal. Whereas next time we see them, it's going to come directly from them, and it's going to be like, oh, you're back. Maybe Why? Maybe my disinterest is that they are sort of <coughs> medium intelligent. Mm-hmm. It's not that they are sort of an unstoppable force of appetite, wherein they can't be reasoned with because they want protein or they want electricity right. or they want something else with sort of with such a ferocious appetite that they can't be bargained with. Like Daleks or Cybermen. Yes. But they also aren't creatures that you can play chess with exactly either. No, they're well, not, not yet they are. They're not at this <laughs> at this story they're yeah. not so smart, so intellectual you can actually sort of double it back on them either. And I yeah. think I was gonna say I think that the setting is probably inhibiting me killing so threatened too. They are at a disadvantage. They are clearly like... The threat is that the scientists are going to lose control of the machinery. Yeah. That was the effective threat. 
And these aliens were just there to kidnap and annoy the companions, it seemed like. That's, that is true. Yeah. That is true. And it really could have been anything. You, you hmm. could kind of replace... If you could replace the Ice Warriors with... Hmm. We found a frozen Dalek. We fought hmm. it out. I mean, it needs power. Yes, to, which they have done, know, in fact. Which exactly. Our refrigerator lost it, power. We just power. opened it after months, and my yes. God, the smell could have just as easily been yeah. the menace. And uh, it's also... Rotten it's hammer. kind of a weird reversal of power of the Daleks, because in that, you get the Dalek seeming to be... Friendly, and it winnows its way into getting enough power to raise an army, and right. it destroys almost the entire. Yeah, they're not like a sort of seductive psychological threat where you want no. to, you know, in, where one what the, the heroes want to engage with them. And it turns out to be a trap mm-hmm. where you know they sort of fool them into a diplomatic situation. Yet, None of that. That's coming, okay. believe it or not. Okay. Which is probably why they're considered they have, bats. They have no hook and no angle. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. They really don't. At this point, they don't. Under Hales, they will once we get to the Peladon stories because then we'll get the Doctor Who universe version of the Federation called the Federation. <laughs> um, the generic Federation. Yes, and Unbranded the Galactic Federation. Federation. And they are, oh. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> two Ds. awful. <laughs> two are terrible. And there, they are diplomats. We're, we're neither unstoppable creatures of appetite, nor are we incredibly intelligent, nor, mm. nor are we especially seductive. Well, you mean you we have, we, Yes. We have no hook. We have no gimmick. Mm, well. Just as we are. Why waste both vials on one warrior? Why did I even read that, that aloud? Too. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, the doctor doesn't seem to think much of them either because he, you know, kills them pretty easily. So, I don't know. Well, no, the stink bomb doesn't even kill him, though. No, it doesn't. It just incapacitates him for a while. He, like, rides, but he still was able to... I'm not liking this book as much as I did previously now. Uh, But once again, in that scene, you know, there's some good humor for Penley where he's, um... I think he's asked if uh, Clint is dead or something yeah. like that. It's like, no, 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 no. I thought about it a few times myself. I'm going to think I've never seen him look so peaceful, but no, <laughs> yes. I didn't do it. And, and the doctor yeah. saying, uh, getting the smelling salts and saying, ooh, this is vile. Oh, it's perfect for him. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I thought they walked a good line with him of, you know, having him yeah. be, you know, giving him a, a bit of a, a, a dashing iconoclastic edge without him just being, you know, sort of an outright unpleasant character. Yeah. So Hales is not good the one moments. we have the trouble with. It's the ice boy. And is yeah. that what I'm hearing? Because I actually... And the weird recurring impression that Hales was rescuing someone else's story, and now I find out he's rescuing he's his rescuing own his story. He's rescuing his own story. Yeah. And Which is better than... Yeah, they're saying, doing pretty well. I was, I was going to say, yeah, I enjoyed reading the yeah. book. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed yes. the story and the arc of it. And <laughs> it's just more now as we're discussing it and talking about it. We're seeing, seeing the all things. these holes and things. Like, yes. Yeah, you, you see, iTunes reviewer, I'm not leading new fans into the darkness. They're leading themselves. Wait, what's the darkness? Uh, the, the band? That, that bad <laughs> iTunes review that we got said that they had to stop listening to the podcast because we were ruining the books for them. Please just approach the books in a positive way and stop trying to lead new fans into thinking badly of them. And it's like, I'm not leading anybody into shit. No, we have our own opinions. Yes. Thank you. Exactly. Speaking of opinions, should we go on to Goodreads? Let us. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, as we always do, 
Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with their own readings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review on comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline, so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, and you may get your review read out loud here. We did not get any comments on the Ice Warriors, unfortunately. But the average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.63, which is a little bit lower than Abominable Snowman, which I have trouble crediting because, well... Yeah, I think this is a better written book. book. Yeah. I mean, Dix was still good. I was going to say, but we enjoyed Abominable Snowman. I think this one's just better. Here we go. Leela42 gives it only two stars saying, novelization of a season 5 story of which only part has been recovered. Uh, quite a good plot, but oh dear, the writing. The science is mostly rubbish. The dating will give you a headache if you try to make sense of it. That actually is a point that we never got to. Yeah. The dialogue is so much filler. That's a bit strong. And the characterizations are unconvincing. So brace yourself. Jack Isles, on the other hand, gives it four stars and said Mark Gatiss describes Doctor Who and the Ice Warriors as a classic. That's right. Mark Gatiss writes the intro to this, the BBC books version, and he's the one who also wrote uh, Cold War, introducing them into the new series. And I am inclined to agree with him. Over the years, I've become desensitized to the situations of peril within Doctor Who. Our heroes usually face an overconfident adversary who can be easily defeated by chucking toffees at them or something <laughs> equally as outrageous. But within this adventure, I began to feel the peril once more. The Ice Warriors posed a very real threat and maintained the upper hand over the Doctor until the final pages. Their defeat came both as a surprise and was very clever. As a story, it is faultless. However, it failed to achieve five-star status because of the sheer number of exclamation marks used throughout. Within speech, it was fine, but within the prose, it began to feel like Brian Hales was shouting at me. I was scared enough as it was. There are quite a few. He's just really excited. He really is. Yeah, and he just can't hide it. And finally, Viola gives it a full five stars. And since her review is so long, I'll encourage you, reader, to go to Goodreads for the rest of it. But here's the first paragraph. Novelizations are at their best when they add something to the original story while retelling them in an accurate and interesting way at the same time. In my opinion, Doctor Who and the Ice Warriors did both. I was more invested in this story this time compared to watching it, well, most of it, with episodes 2 and 3 falling prey to the junking policy of the BBC. I always thought this was a good serial, and it worked well as a book. The format of a novel allows for more information, and it made a big difference with the side characters, who were actually quite central to the plot, and had more complex characterization compared to the TV version. I think it's got a point. Mm-hmm. So, Allison... Out of five stars, what'd you give this? Well, I'm so smarting from our bad review that we're, you know, haters. Um, <laughs> I, no, I um, I enjoyed it. The parts that I was completely bored by and uninterested in were... It was mostly bored with them by dint of repetition of the same plot elements so close together in recent stories. Right. And in that way, this book is a victim of its sequence in the stories. True. Um, so I'd give it a 2.5, which I mean Ooh. is quite positive, actually. That is very positive. Um, because I found it like a sort of a, a watery beer on a hot day. It goes down <laughs> very easily, and you don't want anything too concentrated on a hot day. You want something refreshing. At the same time, it wasn't terribly exciting. But, yeah. 
No, no, I quite enjoyed a lot of the humor and the characterization of the mm. uh, guest stars isn't the right word for novelization, but uh, uh, standalone characters. I thought the characterization of the companions was fine for this story. I was more miffed by how story by story they're all over the map. Yeah, but, but I thought within the, the story it wasn't it wasn't bad. But once again, I'm I'm playing Victoria entirely as the cover where she's just annoyed and exasperated with the entire thing, and she wants yeah. to go back and to the snow. She wants to stop getting kidnapped and go back to uh, chucking snowballs at people and playing with the viper chair. Agreed. So, <laughs> I, so no, I thought it was a good light fun. I just didn't care about. I, I was interested in the peril almost exclusively as built around the scientists trying to control the equipment and the Ice Age more than the actual mm-hmm. uh, Ice Warrior villains okay. themselves. The glaciers are the real Ice Warriors in the story. <laughs> ah, <laughs> very you good. Just there That's why go. Dalton makes the big bucks. Yes. Speaking of which, Dalton, <laughs> out of five stars. Uh, out of five stars. Uh, I feel like I talked a lot of shit about this book, but I like I I, I did enjoy it. Um, I'll say three point five. Really? The book itself is actually well written. I enjoyed the characterization. I really liked the interplay between the characters. The book itself isn't bad. I feel like there's a lot of other things that I'm only now realizing and discussing. But mm-hmm. the book itself. I enjoyed it, so, yeah. Now we're going to get a review that says that we're just, you know... We're as inconsistent we have, as the Well, that we have yes. low standards and, like, kind of any pap uh, that's shoved, in, that's plopped into our dish, and then the next our next readings will be merciless in reaction yeah. to that. Well, they can shove it, because I'm giving this a 4.5 out of yes. 5. Yes. I actually like this one. Yeah. And it from the start, I was like, whoa. The approach to this is very different than the books around it, for sure. It's much closer to Jerry Davis on a good day, which was Tomb of the Cybermen, mm-hmm. to Jerry Davis on a bad day, which would be the Cybermen. Um, it certainly is giving it more attention than Dix would, but then of course he would, because this is his own script. And as you said, Allison, he is rescuing things that were not very good in that mm-hmm. script. And doing a really good job of it. It is, I, I, I never thought about this before, but it is kind of interesting that it's, novelizing your own script is a situation in which a writer really does have a possible do-over. Yes, And that's except, not a published do-over. Right. And usually when authors get that, they run with it. Think about John Lucarati, for instance. Think of um, Donald Cotton. I mean, he wasn't doing it, well, let me think. No, no, no. The Romans was his own script, and he completely redid it. Fellow time travelers, I must have been very tired when I recorded this, because obviously Cotton did not write The Romans. He did write The Gunfighters, which is completely redone for the book, and he did, of course, write The Mythmakers, which is also very strongly redone. But Dennis Spooner was, of course, the scriptwriter for The Romans. My apologies. John Lucarotti uh, looked at the version that was chucked on screen with his name on it and said, that's not the story I wanted Mm. to tell. This is the story I wanted to tell. Mm. Terrence Dix, however, when they interviewed him for this Blu-ray, he was asked about Brain of Morbius. And I'm not getting into the here's and there's about Brain of Morbius right now. Suffice it to say, he turned in a script. Robert Holmes, the script editor at the time, as Robert Holmes always did, he rewrote it. Entirely. 
And when Terrence Dix got the script back to novelize, he was asked, were you tempted to rewrite the story as you originally wrote it? And he said, no. A Doctor Who novelization is a representation of what's on screen. And it needs to be faithful to that. That my original script was not what ended up on screen, so I novelized what did. Ah, okay. And that's, but that's Dick's opinion. Mm-hmm. And we get somebody like Ian Martyr, and Ian Martyr says, you know, that doesn't make any damn sense. I'm putting mm-hmm. that in, and I'm going to talk about masturbation, which he does. Well, 69 Yeah, he do, he's not going to do that next time, by the way, but... We will see scripts from some writers where they will just try their damnedest to make it the best they possibly can. And those scripts can either sing and be wonderful books, or they could be Galaxy 4. So do you think in this case the writer is revising his own work he sort of thought better of? Or he's or he's taking it back from what other writers and what the directors have done with it it's hard to say and the reason why is because at this point and this is something i didn't talk about with the production side doctor who at this era in its history is going through uh musical chairs when it comes to the script editor position just about everybody is sitting on the chair at different points in fact i can't even remember who edited this story it wouldn't have been victor pemberton because he's already left by now but he's coming back to do a script uh it may have been jerry davis but i'm not sure you know, I could look this up. Tell you what, sorry. I know I'm keeping us, but let me look Pause. this up. We talk amongst ourselves now. Well, it, it's easy Let's enough to find out. First. <laughs> our hangry whispers. Why are we talking like this? Kill Fresnack. Why would you do this? Why? Why? <laughs> why? I like how they kept focusing on being tricked. Oh, yeah. How dare you trick us? It's like, why would you think that? All right, here we go. Here we go. Script ed- Oh, worse than I thought. The script editor is Peter Bryant, who would soon be the producer. So, yeah, it's shifting all over the place, and you've got different people doing script editing chores, and it's almost as if it's, uh, it's not a rudderless ship because the producer is almost the same throughout, but the script editor isn't. And you can kind of see that with the companions. That's why I wanted to bring it up earlier. Yeah, like yeah. Yes, and I'm wondering if Hales is changing something that Peter Bryant did to it. Mm. Or whether Hales is looking at something that he wrote in 1967, and he's looking at it in, what, 76, and saying, you know what, this dates. Mm. This is not aging very well. Mm. And he comes up with something much better. He even names the damn computer. So it gives us Alexa before we get In Alexa. such a way that I thought it was going to come up later. Yeah, and it doesn't. So this, the, yeah, this book feels it feels dense, but it, it doesn't it doesn't take long to get through. No. There's a lot there, but as opposed to some of the books that feel really sparse and just like right. and barely we, hanging together. And we've talked about that before, the uh, what prose style means. Oh. And that means, you know, word choice, it means the um the rhythm of a sentence, yeah. it means how you go from one bit of dialogue to the next. Hales has a wonderful, wonderful prose style. Yeah. Ian Martyr, when he's at his best, has a wonderful prose style. Mm-hmm. But the jury is going to be out on whether or not the next book is one of them. Okay. Because, guess Good what? segue. Yeah, I tried. So thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we get an Ian Martyr book, but don't get too excited. Because it's the monsterless, even though that's now debatable, 
Enemy of the World. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target the Club All in word with no spaces. You can also visit our newly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch our videos at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperordalic forward slash videos. And by the way, I have a personal vlog that I have started on that channel so you can see me in person bitching about my life. Oh, uh, yeah. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcaster... Podcaster? Via the podcast provider of your choice anywhere but Podbean because they gouge people. If all else fails, you email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Gretchen Wieners? Yeah, Mean Girls. Gretchen Wieners? Yes. <laughs> you know, mean oh. Girls reference for... You, you know. Oh you, my. If you know, you know. I don't. Okay, well that's going at the end of the podcast for sure. Okay.